Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Israel is preparing for a ground offensive into Rafah, what it calls the last bastion of Hamas control. Our guest weighs in on the latest developments in the war. Israel strikes Hezbollah targets in Lebanon after a drone from the terrorist group crashes in northern Israel. As the U.S. investigates an Air Force drone crash in Yemen that Iran-backed Houthis claim to have shot down. House Republicans take the next step in their impeachment inquiry into the president. This week, Biden's brother will be on Capitol Hill to answer questions as the GOP probes large transfers of money within the Biden family. Former President Trump likely to win the South Carolina primary this weekend as his GOP rival Nikki Haley vows to stay in the race. Collapsed roads, massive flooding and rescues. A wet winter storm is wreaking havoc in California. Capital One and Discover Financial Services have agreed to a $35 billion merger. What changes can consumers expect? And is the deal likely to go through? With the details with NTD business host Don Ma. A traditional woodworker keeps a disappearing art alive while helping dropout kids achieve success. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Tuesday, February 20th. Yeah, and with that impending assault by Israel on Rafah, Egypt is preparing itself. That's right. Uh, they, they have been definitely boosting their security presence there, including some images are showing barbed wire and some now reporting that they allegedly sent 40, um, around 40 tanks to yeah. the border. Yeah, President Sisi is concerned that hundreds of thousands of desperate Gazans will flee into the Sinai. That's right. And that's what consists of today's top news. Israel Defense Forces have released startling findings from their recent operations at Al Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, an Israeli cabinet minister has given a potential start date for Israel's ground offensive into the final stronghold of Hamas. And today's Jason Perry has the war update. Israel Defense Forces say they've detained hundreds of suspected terrorists at Al Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip. On Sunday, the IDF said some of the suspected terrorists were pretending to be medical staff. The IDF also reported finding a large quantity of weapons and explosives at the hospital. This may not have been too surprising for the Israeli military, as their intelligence suggests that over 85% of hospitals in the Gaza Strip have been used for terrorist activity. But some may have been surprised by this latest discovery inside the Al Nasser Hospital's pharmacy. Here in the pharmacy, we found medicines that were seemingly supposed to go to the hostages with labels and the name of the hostage. You can see pictures here. The pictures have been cut. Some of the inscriptions still remain. It can be seen that none of the medication was used. And in another location at the hospital, the IDF found containers of medicine specifically for the hostages, with the hostages' names written on the boxes. 
This was apparently part of a shipment of medicine after an agreement was reached between Qatar, France, Israel and Hamas to allow the delivery of medication to the hostages. This woman was pregnant when her husband was believed to be taken hostage on October 7th. She recently had her baby without him. I didn't want to get to this moment. I really hoped our baby would wait until the last moment. I had some hope that maybe Delev will return and could be with me in that situation, but it didn't happen. Israel has repeatedly said that only through military pressure will Hamas release the hostages. And the Israeli military has their eyes set on one final city they believe to be the last stronghold of Hamas terrorists, Rafah, which lies on the Egyptian border. Gaza residents are worried about the potential Israeli ground offensive. There are fears that a catastrophe will happen in case of an Israeli ground offensive. The crowds are huge. When they strike, they will hit people. Israeli cabinet minister Benny Gantz on Sunday said if the hostages aren't returned, the Israeli ground offensive into Rafah will begin by Ramadan. The Islamic month of fasting will begin in about three weeks. Jason Perry, NTD News. For more analysis on this, we're bringing in Avi Malamed. He is a former Israeli intelligence official and senior official on Arab affairs. Good morning, Avi. It's good to see you. So if Israel should really use a holy month to attack Rafah, what do you think, first of all, will it do to its standing internationally? Good morning. Well, the international community, as you know, objects Israeli operation in Rafah. On the other hand, Israel insists, and rightly so, that it will continue the operation until the hostages are being back in Israel. So I think that the equation here is very clear, and we have to take it into consideration. But some also in the some call the West Bank, for instance, a powder keg that's ready to explode. So how big of a risk is this area, for instance, for Israel as well, especially if they should really follow through with a threat and attack Rafah during Ramadan? Yes, the situation in the West Bank is very uh, uh, tense. Um, lots of frictions between IDF and uh, militant uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, militias in different parts of the West Bank. But in the end of the day, uh, Israel really doesn't have any choice because like any other government, it has to bring back their uh, its civilians that are hostages. So Israel has to do whatever it takes to bring them back home. And you're saying that all indicators are pointing to IDF strategists already having finished their planning and are already prepared to go into Rafa any moment, basically. So tell me more uh, why you said that. I think it should be understood in the world that Israel means business. Again, I have to re-emphasize, this is a situation where a sovereign state and a government of a sovereign state find itself in a situation where a brutal terror organization is kidnapping its civilians. And the government responsibility is to release those civilians. This is the government responsibility, whatever the means it takes. Now, it can be done very easily if tomorrow morning Hamas will say, OK, I'm releasing the civilians. This is what Israel has is been saying all along the way. Release the hostages and there will be a ceasefire. And you were basically saying that um, on the Israeli end, though, the militarily and strategically, they're all prepared and they're just waiting to pull the trigger. Is that right? So you're saying they're ready to go into um, Rafah at any moment. So what are they, what do you think are they exactly waiting for to pull that trigger? One major thing, of course, is has to be in the context of making sure that civilians will be safe as much as possible in Rafah. So Israel has to do as a preliminary stage to make sure that the civilians in Rafah are going to be evacuated 
uh, because again, this is one of the most complex, if not the most complex war Israel has been fighting. This is massively urban area. Hamas is taking shelter in tunnels and bunkers beneath the ground within its own brothers and sisters. It's very complex, but it's very clear to anyone that Israel military operation must first and foremost uh, be such that will take into consideration the well-being of the civilians in Gaza Strip, as Israel has been doing to a large extent until now. Right. And on that note, where do you think they would be able to even still move the millions of people? And um, what what does it mean also for the foreign aid that is coming through there since the Rafah crossing is so essential for that? I think one possible location has put, could be the area of the eastern part of Rafah uh, in proximity to the Israeli-Gaza border. There is a wide open area right over there. Also, we take into consideration we are heading towards springtime in our area, so the conditions should be much more, less harsh than in comparison to winter. But again, as I said, it's very clear that there must be a preparatory phase, phase where Israel is making sure that if it's going to operate in, in Rafah, before that, uh, Israel will take care of the well-being of the Palestinian civilians in Gaza Strip. Israel made it very clear it's going to take care of them. All right. Thank you so much, Avi Malamed. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Israel says it struck Hezbollah weapons depots in southern Lebanon after the, the Iran-backed group launched a drone into Israel yesterday. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari stated the drone crashed and said Israel is determined to continue reacting aggressively to the terrorist group. The army released videos of two strikes it carried out on Hezbollah infrastructure yesterday. The strikes took place roughly 40 miles north of Israel's border near the major port city of Sidon. Recent drone strikes in Lebanon have killed several senior members of Hezbollah and Hamas. Israel and Hezbollah fought a month-long war in 2006 that ended in a stalemate. Clashes with the terrorist group have erupted almost daily since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. The U.S. is investigating what happened to an MQ-9 Reaper drone that crashed in Yemen yesterday. Yemen's Houthi terrorist group claims to have shot it down. The Iran-backed group does have surface-to-air missiles capable of shooting American drones down. The Pentagon said an MQ-9 was shot down over the Red Sea last year. The terror group continues to ignore warnings from the U.S. and its allies to stop its attacks. A crew of a commercial vessel in the Gulf of Aden was forced to abandon ship over the weekend. The U.S. Military Central Command says an anti-ship ballistic missile hit a U.K.-owned bulk carrier on Sunday and that a separate vessel was also attacked. All crew were reported safe. CENTCOM says it reacted with new airstrikes against Houthi targets, including one on the first underwater drone scene since the group ramped up its attacks. And the European Union launched a naval mission yesterday to help protect cargo ships in the Red Sea. The mission will not participate in military strikes and will be run out of Greece. Germany and Belgium are each contributing a frigate. The United Nations Security Council is expected to vote on a Gaza ceasefire today. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. says the Biden administration will veto the resolution because it could interfere with efforts to secure a six-week pause hostage deal. The U.S. circulated a rival draft resolution supporting a temporary ceasefire yesterday. It calls for the release of all hostages and the lifting of all restrictions of humanitarian aid. 
The draft resolution states Israel's ground offensive in Rafah should not proceed under current circumstances and warns of serious implications for regional security and peace if more civilians are displaced. It included the risk for neighboring countries in reference to Egypt. The U.S. draft condemns any calls for resettlement on or territorial change in Gaza that would violate international law. Arab nations hoping to shore up global support with their resolution despite rejection by the U.S. The vote is scheduled for 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And the widow of former Haitian President Jovenel Moise has been indicted for his murder, along with the ex-prime minister and former chief of police. According to a judge's report released on Monday, dozens of suspects were charged in the 2021 assassination. The most serious charges are against Leon Charles, who was police chief when Moise was murdered. Ex-prime minister Claude Joseph and Martine Moise, the widowed wife of the president, are accused of complicity. Joseph accused Haiti's current prime minister, Aliel Henry, of weaponizing the justice system to go after political opponents. Haiti experienced a spate of violent protests earlier this month. Protesters demanded that Henry resign and hold elections, a promise he'd made in 2022. These recent indictments are only expected to further deepen the crisis in the Caribbean nation. And today, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and his lawyers begin their final legal challenge to stop his, stop his extradition from Britain to the U.S. That's after more than 13 years of battling authorities in the English courts. Assange is facing spying charges in the U.S. Prosecutors want to put him on trial over the high-profile release of confidential U.S. military records and diplomatic cables. They argue the leaks endangered the lives of their agents and there's no excuse for his criminality. Assange's supporters hail him as an anti-establishment hero and a journalist who's being persecuted for exposing U.S. wrongdoing. Assange's legal battles began in 2010, and he subsequently spent seven years holed up in Ecuador's embassy in London before he was dragged out and jailed in 2019 for breaching bail conditions. He's been held in a maximum security jail in southeast London ever since. Britain finally approved his extradition to the U.S. in 2022. That's after a judge initially blocked it over concerns about his mental health. Assange's lawyer has argued that he's at risk of suicide if extradited to the U.S. Moving on to Russia, Russia's Federal Security Service, or FSB, has detained a woman with dual Russian-U.S. citizenship in the city of Yekaterinburg, a suspicion of treason. Russian state media claims the woman was raising funds for Ukraine's armed forces. The FSB accuses the 33-year-old Los Angeles resident of being involved in providing financial assistance to a foreign state in activities directed against the security of our country. The statement also said the money collected was to be spent on the Ukraine war effort on items such as medicine, weapons and ammunition. There was no immediate comment from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow or the State Department. Russian media outlets did not name the woman. Coming up, we look ahead at the South Carolina Republican primary this Saturday. Former President Trump is poised to pull off another win, but his rival Nikki Haley vows to stay in the race. 
Many high-profile GOP representatives are leaving Congress. Some hold powerful committee chairs. Why would they leave with a Republican majority? A political analyst sheds some light insights. New voting maps in Wisconsin as Democrats overturn Republican-drawn maps after a decade-long effort. Hear how a new state Supreme Court justice helped their success after the break. Welcome back. President Biden's brother will be on Capitol Hill later this week for a closed-door interview. It will be key testimony for House Republicans as they take their next step in a months-long investigation probing large money transfers within the Biden family. NTD's Melina Wisecup reports. Two key testimonies are taking place behind closed doors on Capitol Hill later this month as Republicans continue their months-long impeachment inquiry into President Biden. The first is the president's brother, James Biden. He'll be answering questions about a money trail within the Biden family that Republicans claim is ultimately sourced from foreign countries in part of a larger bribery scheme. Lawmakers on the Oversight Committee will likely focus in on a $40,000 check and a $200,000 check that James Biden paid to his brother in 2017 and 2018. They were listed as loans, but the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer questions that since the money came the same day that James Biden received money from one of his business interests, now bankrupt AmeriCorps. In addition to speaking with the president's family members, lawmakers on the Oversight Committee have also sought testimony from several former Biden family business associates. For example, Tony Bobulinski and his testimony before the Oversight Committee last week brought up the issue of a Chinese energy company, the boss of which President Biden previously met with in 2017. Bobulinski told lawmakers bluntly his family's foreign influence peddling operation from China to Ukraine and elsewhere sold out to foreign actors who were seeking to gain influence and access to Joe Biden and the United States government. Although President Biden has repeatedly denied these allegations, saying he has not spoken with his family members about their business endeavors. And next week, the president's son, Hunter Biden, has finally agreed to meet behind closed doors with the Oversight Committee after defying the first subpoena that they sent him, as well as making a surprise visit to Capitol Hill when they were getting ready to hold him in contempt of Congress. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. South Carolina's Republican primary will be held this Saturday. Former President Trump appears likely to win yet another contest, this time in rival Nikki Haley's home state. A poll released last week by Winthrop University shows 65% of likely voters in the state support the nomination of former President Trump, a 36% lead over his opponent, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. So let's do what we know South Carolina does. Haley has been campaigning intensely in her home state, where she served as governor for six years. Do we want more of the same, or do we want to go in a new direction? But so far, she's been unable to close the gap in the polls. Trump has secured several key endorsements in the Palmetto State, most notably former presidential candidate and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Though her chances of winning South Carolina are slim, Haley has said she will not back out of the race. Bolstered by support from her donors, she's looking to campaign into Super Tuesday and possibly beyond. I promise you this, on Sunday I'm headed to Michigan. 
And then we're going to Super Tuesday states, and we're going to keep on going. Statements to Reuters said some of Haley's donors believe Trump's criminal cases could force him out of the race, leaving Haley as the only GOP presidential candidate. Everybody's telling me, why don't you just get out? I will never give up. Both candidates after South Carolina will look to Super Tuesday on March 5th, when over 15 states and territories go to the polls. And how are Trump's legal issues impacting voters and his campaign? And today, Steve Land spoke with Mark Lauder, the former director of strategic communications for Trump-Pence 2020, about Trump's lead in the polls and his GOP rival Nikki Haley's pledge to stay in the race. I'm shocked that she's going on this long. I mean, the latest polling has her down about 30, 31 points in her home state. The governor of her home state, the uh, leading congressional delegation, the senators all support Donald Trump. But then even when you look past that and you go to Super Tuesday, which is right around the corner, Nikki Haley is losing by 50, 60, 70 points in each one of those Super Tuesday states. So I don't see that there's a pathway forward for her. I think the only thing she's doing is actually helping Joe Biden because Donald Trump has got to divert some of his attention and some of his money on Nikki Haley rather than prosecuting the case against Joe Biden in the general election. I think the biggest thing is that Joe Biden has a record now, and it's a record that people don't like on immigration, on the economy, on inflation and gas prices. I mean, you go down the list. I, mean, I was on the 2020 campaign, and Joe Biden was a hypothetical president. He could say that he was going to end the pandemic, and he wouldn't mean tweet, and he could hide from his basement, and that was pretty much all he had to do. Well, now he has a record to run on, and people don't like that record, regardless of whether they're blue states or red states, people don't like it. They give him double-digit disapproval uh, on just about every major issue facing the American people, and so I think that's why they, Donald Trump is doing so well, because people want to go back to the Trump policies. They worked. Senator Joe Manchin said yesterday that Senate Republicans blocking a border and foreign aid bill earlier this month was the biggest part of his decision to not run for president. The retiring Democratic lawmaker said he always believed lawmakers could legislate through a crisis and was disappointed by the border package vote. Our NATO allies are very concerned and the reason we are the superpower of the world is we have uh, allies who have the same values that we have. The, the love of freedom and democracy. And it's just unbelievable that if he would not let that come to the floor for a vote. Congress remains gridlocked. Top House Republicans are refusing to support the new foreign aid package that doesn't include border security. Manchin had set a deadline of this spring to determine whether he would make a run for the White House, potentially on the no labels ticket. But he announced on Friday that he was pulling the plug to focus on a new group. Americans Together, which promotes moderate politics. Manchin has refused to endorse Biden and criticize the president for being too liberal. The senator has also said he wouldn't be part of any effort to help Trump return to the White House. And more in politics, several high-profile Republicans from the House of Representatives have announced they will be retiring. Some cite the inability of the conference to band together and get things done. We speak to Mike Leon, a political analyst and the host of the Can We Please Talk podcast, for more on this. Great to have you with us, Mike. What does the departure of several GOP committee chairs signal about the cohesion of the Republican conference in the House? 
Well, Kevin, thanks for having me, uh, first and foremost. You know, this is something we've been covering a lot on the show, and I've been talking to lawmakers on, on both sides of the aisle and strategists as well. You're seeing so many members of Congress retiring. Obviously, we know how many House seats, everybody's House seat is up, right? Some are in safer districts than others. And I think the biggest takeaway that I've had, if you just look at the special election that happened in New York, uh, a Democrat won a seat back from the Republicans. And so what you're seeing right now is more folks are starting to retire because what they're starting to notice is we're not passing legislation. You know, Representative Chip Roy was on the House floor a couple months back yelling before the break of what can I take back to my constituents to show them that I've passed legislatively in the House since we've taken office, since we've asked for their vote. And he had nothing. And he was yelling profusely at members. And I think the, the, the American people truly want this. Is, this is a group project, right? The Republicans and Democrats are working together on a group project. We're all getting graded on this group project. We want you guys to work together. And right now, we're not working together. And we're seeing some members just quit saying, I can't work with these folks. So it's better for me to just go join TV and Mike Leon and be a political analyst than actually get in and get my hands dirty and try to fight to pass legislation. Well, Mike, this is really serious stuff. I mean, China Select Committee Chair Mike Gallagher, he was once seen as the future of the party, and now he's resigning over yep. blowback for voting down that impeachment of DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. So what types of candidates would replace those who are retiring? Well, you know, and, and this is a really good point. I'm so glad you brought this up, Kevin, because we saw it a couple years ago after, you know, former President Trump lost Representative Tony Gonzalez, you've seen the Liz Cheney, the Adam Kinzinger's, the true folks that are, you know, Republican, conservative, believe in smaller government. Um, they are all out of office and all of them, all of their seats kind of flipped to somebody else that was a little bit more in, in the MAGA movement party. So the strategist I talked to now on the Republican side of the aisle, it's you either embrace this wing of the party, the Matt Gates of the world, which I know we'll get to in a sec, you either replace, you either embrace them or you're going to end up like this, retiring. And, and look no further in the evidence part than James Langford. I know a different chamber of Congress, but a true conservative, a member of the Senate. Here he is working in good faith with Representative Chris, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, excuse me, on this border legislation. They have everything, all their I's uh, dotted and their T's crossed in terms of this bill. And it dies in the House because it can't get the support of folks like Matt Gates and stuff like that. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me. It's like true members of the conservative party that are trying to push the conservative agenda can't even get the support within their parties. And so, you know, if you're watching this on the Democratic side of the aisle, you're laughing. If you're watching on the Republican side of the aisle and you truly want to govern, this is a huge issue for you because if you either embrace the party or you're not going to be a part of it anymore. Well, yeah, and let's touch on Representative Matt Gates. He wrote an X that the CNN article mentioned the brain drain of the GOP leaving Congress. He said, I love this CNN article. The fundamental premise that I've made Congress so miserable for so many members that they're leaving, wonderful. We can't save America with the current Republican team. We have to get tougher and smiter. We need newer, bolder voices in the House. Do you agree with this? <laughs> Well, listen, I live in Florida, right? He doesn't represent my district, actually, Carlos Jimenez does. But um, I don't agree with it on, on the surface because of what is happening right now. We're seeing not enough votes to pass certain pieces of legislation. So even to Matt Gates's point, if he did want to pass pieces of legislation, he doesn't even have the votes, right? So when you look at what Don Bacon wants to bring legislatively, 
he won't have the votes and Matt Gates won't have the votes. And so both of you are starting with needing to appeal to the other side of the aisle to potentially get some votes. Who's in a better position to appeal to the Democratic side of the aisle to hopefully get some votes to get things passed? Don Bacon or Matt Gates? Those are the things you have to ask yourself right now. And I think the, the biggest takeaway from this is a lot of people have compared this to high school, you know, and sitting in a cafeteria with friends. I mean, it truly is like that. But these folks are leaning on these conservative members that truly want to get back to policy disagreements and how we execute things. And they're losing out to this juvenile section of the party that just doesn't want to govern and wants to see chaos. It's it's the people that are hurt by it, Kevin, are you and me and the folks that are watching this. That's the true uh, big issue and takeaway. I see. Political analyst Mike Leon, thanks so much for weighing in on this. Thanks for having me. Wisconsin's Democratic Governor Tony Evers signed new legislative district maps into law yesterday. The governor proposed the maps and Republicans passed them to avoid having the liberal-controlled state Supreme Court draw the lines. Democrats hailed the signing as a major political victory in the swing state. The legislature has been firmly under Republican control for more than a decade. This despite Democrats winning 14 of the past 17 statewide elections. Democrats tried unsuccessfully for more than a decade to overturn the Republican-drawn maps, but it wasn't until the state Supreme Court flipped from conservative to liberal control last year that Democrats found a winning formula. Republicans said they had no better option. A top Republican official said Monday that Evers, quote, signed the most Republican-leaning maps out of all the Democrat gerrymandered maps being considered by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And stay with us, heavy flooding causes road collapses and mudslides in California as emergency crews rescue people trapped in swollen creeks, rivers, and roadways. The shooting deaths of two officers and a first responder in Minnesota are still under investigation as key questions remain unanswered. What we know so far after the break. Welcome back. Virginians take special pride in commemorating George Washington's birthday for President's Day. NTD's Luis Eduardo Martinez has more on the tribute to the father of the nation. George Washington, Alexandria's original living legend. This is the theme of this year's George Washington's birthday parade here in Alexandria, Virginia. Washington wasn't born in this historic city, but according to locals, it's his adopted hometown. George Washington's birthday. Yeah, that's the whole point of this parade. It's nice to come for a celebration. This is a happy thing. It's nice to have a happy thing after COVID, right? We spoke with the man of the hour himself to hear his reactions to the festivities. Who would have known that when I helped lay out the city as a young surveyor in 1749 that 275 years later it would be prospering as it has and so I'm elated about that as well. Alexandria is also marking its 275th anniversary. Local members of historical societies made sure to also celebrate their city, which is only 17 years younger than the first president himself. Some dressed up in the Virginia Continental uniform of the Revolutionary War. I'm here representing the Sons of the American Revolution. Help celebrate the spirit of the 250th anniversary as well as uh, support our local community in Alexandria. 
According to the George Washington Celebration Committee, the parade offers the public an event that caters to all, not just the history lovers. Uh, we're seeing all kinds of uh, Civil War, American Revolution people, Scottish people, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, World War I, World War II, jazz bands, regular bands, fife and drum bands, you name it. This, this uh, parade has got everything. The parade boasts to be the largest and oldest of its kind. This year's iteration is its 101st. Reporting from Alexandria, Virginia, Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. California got another hit of wet winter weather yesterday. Runways were flooded at a regional airport and emergency crews performed several rescues on swollen rivers and creeks. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the update. The Santa Barbara airport on the state central coast closed Monday after as much as 10 inches fell covering the runways with water. The National Weather Service had warned that California's central coast was at risk of significant flooding. Up to five inches of rain predicted for many areas, with isolated rain totals of 10 inches in some areas as the storm headed toward greater Los Angeles. Significant flooding has hit Sonoma County, with massive amounts of water inundating the land and roadways. Water levels there rose to two feet high. Near Fremont, California, a slide caused the partial collapse and shutdown of Niles Canyon Road. Another road here, State Road 150, was shut down due to mudslides. The city of Ventura also grappled with mudslides and flooding. The water here moves swiftly down a neighborhood street. Emergency crews deal with the runoff as it eats away at the roads. Maintenance crews install sandbags to try to keep water from rushing over the streets. Many rescues were also carried out. Paso Robles Fire and Emergency Services said they had to rescue three people off islands in the swollen Salinas River on Monday. And the El Dorado Hills Fire Department rescued a man on Sweetwater Creek. He was trapped in the middle of the rapidly moving waters. The Sacramento Metropolitan Fire District says it rescued two people trapped in a vehicle in waist-high floodwaters. Metro Fire boat teams helped them off the car roof and got them to safety. Millions in California remain in the risk zone for heavy rain, flash flooding and landslides. But officials said the state was unlikely to experience damage like that produced by an atmospheric river that came ashore two weeks ago. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A 911 call about a domestic incident ended with the shooting deaths of two police officers, a first responder and the suspect. Another officer was wounded. Residents of Burnsville, a Minneapolis suburb, are left disturbed and wanting answers. Police say they're still conducting their preliminary investigation into Sunday's shooting. The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension has identified the dead suspect as Shannon Gidden, but it hasn't revealed how he died or what prompted the 911 call. Court records show Gooden wasn't allowed to own guns. He'd also been involved in a custody and financial support dispute over his three oldest children. Police were first called to the house on Sunday about a domestic situation where a man was reported to be armed and barricaded with family members in the home. 
Officers spent time negotiating with Gooden before he allegedly opened fire. Several officers returned fire during the exchange. The Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association said the standoff lasted for four hours before a SWAT team entered the home. Investigators will review body camera videos and gather other evidence to determine exactly what happened. Lawmakers in West Virginia are pushing to remove legal protections for educators who expose children to obscene material. On Friday, the West Virginia House of Delegates passed House Bill 46-54. This would remove schools, public libraries, and museums from the list of exemptions from criminal liability for displaying or distributing obscene matter to a minor. Republican Brandon Steele, the main sponsor of the bill, said it's crucial to children's safety. West Virginia GOP co-chair Tony Hodge wrote on X, there are those who want obscene material available to children, and there are those who want to protect children. Opponents of the bill are calling this an attempt to ban anything that doesn't conform to conservative values. The West Virginia ACLU said that bill is designed to create confusion for educators about what kind of materials can be taught. The bill will have to be voted on by the state Senate before it becomes law. Several other states have already enacted similar obscenity laws, including Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Indiana. Stay with us as the U.S. sends billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. An important strategic partner sends billions of dollars to Russia. That's through purchases of record amounts of Russian crude oil. We'll delve deeper with Entity Business host Don Ma. Capital One and Discover may be merging in a massive $35 billion deal. What changes can consumers expect? And is the deal likely to go through at all? Get the whole story with NTD business host Don Ma after the break. to have you back everyone joining us now is ntd business host don ma as you can see to give us the latest updates from the financial world don what do you have for us today okay so uh it seems like i have a few things to talk about uh including a uh an update about russia and something about capital one and developments in the american semiconductor industry so i'll start off uh with the update with russia and its conflict with Ukraine. So we already know that Moscow is getting funding for the war through various channels, but I don't think that everyone knows that it's also getting funding from an important United States strategic partner, which is India. Russia is entering its third year of war in Ukraine with, un with an unprecedented amount of cash in government coffers. And this is bolstered by a record $37 billion of crude oil sales to India alone last year. And this is according to the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air. So we know that because of sanctions, China has been buying record amounts of Russian crude and became the country's top oil buyer. But it, you know, it feels very different when a U.S. strategic partner is stepping into to replace crude oil purchases by Western buyers here. 
Yeah, that's right. Like you said, I mean, there were a lot of criticism whether those sanctions actually work. And we all know that China was, that Russia was circumventing it through China. But like you said, not India was not really talked about that much. So how much is India actually buying from Russia? In terms right, of right. So uh, according to the think tank and its analysis, uh, India is buying uh, record amounts of crude oil from Russia. And that, ex that exact number seems like to be around over 13 times compared to pre-war numbers. Uh, but an important thing to point out that is, uh, despite the large purchases uh, of Russian crude, uh, sales to India are actually not subject to sanctions, so they're completely legitimate. But those purchases have indeed helped Russia fund its war against Ukraine to a certain degree, and the net impact of India's crude purchases has helped Russia mitigate Western oil sanctions to a degree as well. And Russia's federal revenues rose to a record $320 billion in 2023, and are set to rise even further. Now, roughly a third of the money was spent on the war in Ukraine last year, according to some analysts, which is very significant here. And a greater proportion is still set to finance uh, the conflict this year, 2024. Well, yeah, and Don, India's external affairs minister told a German outlet that they've always had a stable and friendly relationship with Russia. But now back to the U.S., what's the latest in the semiconductor sector? Right, uh, so uh, some news there as well. The Biden administration is taking measures aimed at revitalizing semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. And officials said yesterday that the government intends to award $1.5 billion to the computer chip making company Global Foundries. And this is aimed at expanding uh, the U.S.'s domestic production in New York and Vermont. And this will be the first major award, actually, from the Chips and Science Act approved by Congress in 2022. So here's a bit of more uh, details for you. Uh, Global Foundries is the world's third largest contract chip maker, and it will build a new semiconductor product, uh, production facility in Malta, New York, and expanding existing operations there. And in Burlington, Vermont as well. So Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said uh, yesterday that these new facilities are actually essential to making chips that ensure American national, uh, national security. And Global Foundry's chips are used in satellite and space communications and the defense industry as well. And of course, all this is part of the bigger plan to make it harder uh, that China and other countries don't overtake the U.S. in this area. Right, there's definitely a tense uh, competition surrounding tech in, in a time that Blinken was calling a couple of years back that you know the, the era of post-Cold War is over. And it definitely, that just sheds light on how important semiconductors are in that sector as well. But um, let's, let's talk about business here for, for, let's switch topics. And because there has been big acquisitions in the US, so Capital One just announced yesterday that it agreed to buy Discover Financial Services in an over $35 billion stock-only deal, what we have just mentioned before. So what does this mean for the consumers? Right, a lot of eyes on this deal here. Uh, so it would combine two of the biggest credit card companies in the United States and the merging of the Warren Buffett-backed Capital One and Discover Financial Services would create the sixth largest U.S. bank based on assets. It would also create a credit card giant able to compete with Chase and Citigroup. So very big here. And any bank merges must uh, first be approved by government regulators and by the shareholders of each company. Now, if the deal gets approved, uh, Capital One estimates it will happen in late 
2024 or potentially even uh, early 2025. And during the approval process, consumers will see little impact. Uh, but according to David Robinson of the Nielsen Report, uh, Discover are cashback cards and uh, Capital One are reward cards. This means consumers may see better rewards programs from uh, both companies in the future. However, experts still expect that the deal uh, to receive intense government scrutiny. Um, so as to why the merger, right? Uh, a lot of uh, people asking this, it would allow Capital One to process card transactions over Discover's worldwide payment network instead of using Visa or MasterCard networks. And both companies have said that they do expect to save almost $3 billion pre-tax synergies in 2027 from the Discover Payment Network savings alone. So pretty big here. Well, yeah, and Capital One can capitalize on those merchant fees if it does merge with Discover, if that all goes through. Don Ma, host of Entity Business, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to break now. A traditional woodworker keeps a disappearing art alive while helping dropout kids achieve success. Get that story when we come back. Welcome back. Next, we want to delve into the healing power of woodworking. We hear from a veteran who shares with us the beauty and intricacy of this amazing craft. Let's take a look. Eric Hollenbeck is one of the last master craftsmen of a truly unique disappearing art. He is the proprietor of Blue Ox Millworks, one of the last Victorian mills in America employing traditional tools and techniques. Founded nearly 50 years ago, it reproduces identical components, such as doors, windows, moldings, and columns, for buildings that are up to several hundred years old. The company doesn't make a product line, and everything is made to order. Much of the work focuses on government projects, including the National Trust, which has many historic buildings. A high school dropout and military veteran, Eric started the company with a $300 bank loan, initially as a salvage logging company. You see, that's not starting from zero, that's starting from a minus $300. <laughs> and, uh, and then I found the equipment that I needed in the woods around this county, thrown away and abandoned. I would bring the pieces of equipment here to the shop, I would rebuild them. I've always been good mechanically, always, my whole life. I would rebuild them, make them work again, and then teach myself how to use them. That's the process I went through. Now his work has also led him to become a television celebrity, with his restoration projects featuring on the Magnolia Network series, The Craftsman. Eric's authentic reproductions are found as far afield as the White House and the Mascot Saloon in Skagway, Alaska but the primary focus of the show is on historic homes and forgotten treasures in his hometown of Eureka in California. Moreover, around a decade ago, he started a program to help fellow veterans redefine themselves in the wake of coming home from war. Why can I work with combat veterans? Have you ever heard the term, what don't kill you makes you stronger? What's that really mean? Does it make you physically stronger? Yeah, probably a little bit of that. Does it make you uh, smarter, stronger in, in smartness? Yeah, there's probably a little bit of that in there, I suppose. It doesn't make you spiritually stronger. I'll give you that. It, there could be some of that in there. I think it's the fourth one. It gives you empathy. 
because you've walked a mile in those boots. Eric is also running a program for kids who dropped out of school, which he launched in 2000, and which has yielded great success. And for Eric, this means serious business. I can relate to these guys and gals. They're wonderful people. They're, the young people are wonderful people. And the veterans are wonderful people, attributes they don't even know they have. The 76-year-old shared his insight and passion for his pursuit. You work with these and this, and you are a uh, craftsman. You work with these and this and your heart, and you're a master craftsman. Great story. Yeah, it's awesome what he's doing, you know, giving another chance and, uh, yeah, continuing this traditional craft. Powerful insight, too, with empathy as a form of strength. All right, absolutely. All right, that, what a great note to end the first half of the show or the first part of the show. We'll be right back in a couple of seconds, so stay tuned for more. NTD News, the fastest-growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original, award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories today. South Carolina will hold its Republican primary this Saturday. Polls indicate it will be another win for former President Trump. But GOP rival Nikki Haley has vowed to stay in the race. New voting maps in Wisconsin as Democrats overturn GOP-drawn maps after a decade of trying. Hear how a new state Supreme Court justice helped their success. The Biden administration awards America's largest domestic semiconductor manufacturer $1.5 billion under the Chips and Science Act, how the chipmaker plans to put funding to use. Mortgage rates are shooting up right now, but should that stop you from buying your dream home? Find out why a real estate investor says it should not. And the latest models around London Fashion Week are four-legged and furry. Cats do the catwalk in the British capital. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today's Tuesday, February 20th. Today's top news, South Carolina's Republican primary will be held this Saturday. Former President Trump appears likely to win yet another contest, this time in rival Nikki Haley's home state. A poll released last week by Winthrop University shows 65% of likely voters in the state support the nomination of former President Trump, a 36% lead over his opponent, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. So let's do what we know South Carolina does. Haley has been campaigning intensely in her home state, where she served as governor for six years. Do we want more of the same, or do we want to go in a new direction? 
but so far, she's been unable to close the gap in the polls. Trump has secured several key endorsements in the Palmetto State, most notably former presidential candidate and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. Though her chances of winning South Carolina are slim, Haley has said she will not back out of the race. Bolstered by support from her donors, she's looking to campaign into Super Tuesday and possibly beyond. I promise you this, on Sunday I'm headed to Michigan. And then we're going to Super Tuesday states, and we're going to keep on going. Statements to Reuters said some of Haley's donors believe Trump's criminal cases could force him out of the race, leaving Haley as the only GOP presidential candidate. Everybody's telling me, why don't you just get out? I will never give up. Both candidates after South Carolina will look to Super Tuesday on March 5th, when over 15 states and territories go to the polls. And for a preview of the South Carolina GOP primary, we bring in John Schweppe, the Director of Policy at the American Principles Project. John, thanks for coming on. Why is Haley's hawkish stance on the wars in Gaza and Ukraine said to be taking center stage in South Carolina's primary? I think it's a big contrast between her and President Trump. You know, President Trump has kind of reimagined the Republican Party to some degree since the Bush years, uh, you know, being more about uh, walking softly and carrying a big stick rather than engaging in, in seemingly, you know, every foreign conflict possible. And Haley obviously takes a little bit of a different view there. And you see that, you know, emphatically with the, with the war in Ukraine, you know, Haley wants to just continue this uh, inevitably. Uh, to, to go after Russia, and Trump is much more thinking in the line of America first. You know, is this in our interest long term? How long is this going to go? And I think more Republican voters tend to be where Trump is than where Haley is. Okay, John, Haley has been called a neoconservative for her support in intervening in these foreign wars. How will that affect her chances in South Carolina? Well, I think neoconservatism is a departure from conservatism. And, you know, it's something that's happened, as I said, in the last you know, two decades. Uh, but ultimately, conservatives are not about that. They want to, you know, if we're going to engage in a foreign conflict, they want to be able to see what the objective is, that there's an exit strategy, that this is something that is in America's interest. And so, you know, you're, you're seeing from a lot of folks like Haley right now, you know, we just need to stay in Ukraine because it's against Russia. And so we've got to beat Russia. And, you know, I think Republican voters want more than that. And uh, ultimately, that's what, you know, the difference between Trump and her. Former President Trump has been opposed to sending aid to Ukraine, but he's not afraid of intervening in foreign affairs, such as the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. So if Haley is a neocon, what's Trump, a traditional conservative? Yeah, I think that that's more accurate. You know, Trump is a cost benefit guy. He's a businessman, right? So you look at the, the strike against Soleimani, he saw something that we could do relatively easily, that we could deter terrorism, that we could go after, you know, one of our enemies in Iran. And, uh, and I think it was a really effective, uh, you know, action that he took. You know, when you're looking at something like Ukraine, which is more drawn out, uh, where, you know, it's not necessarily clear what the exit strategy is or if there's a win condition, you know, I think he's a little bit more skeptical. And that's where I think his seasoned experience uh, matters. And Haley, you know, actually isn't that experienced. You know, her, her best experience so far in foreign policy has been kind of, you know, model UN, essentially. And, uh, and so I think she has a little bit of a naive view of how uh, to engage in a lot of these world affairs. 
Right, neocons are a little more hawkish on foreign policy, whereas conservatives are a little bit more cautious. And we look back at February 2016 when former President Trump was campaigning for the White House. He said the war in Iraq was a big, fat mistake. John, how does Trump's label, his traditional conservative label, affect his amount of support in the Palmetto State? Well, I think people agreed with him back in 2016, and that was why it was so bold of him to say that. You know, Republicans were frustrated with the Bush years. When Bush ran in 2000, he actually promised not to do any nation building because conservatives were frustrated uh, with the Kosovo thing. And, and you know, we kind of obviously, 9-11 uh, happened and that led to one thing and another. But, you know, I think he is where voters are at, and, uh, and we're going to see that uh, in the South Carolina primary when he wins by 35, 40 points. All right, and John, just in a few seconds, why would a GOP state representative say that former military are adamantly opposed to this Bush-Cheney neocon policy? Because of the loss of life in the Iraq war, in the Afghanistan wars. And, you know, a lot of these veterans are looking back and they're wondering what it all was for. And we can't do that again. We got to make sure that if we go to war, uh, that there's a clear mission, that there's an exit strategy, that it's in America's interest. And I think Donald Trump understands that best in this primary. Well, John Schweppe, Director of Policy at the American Principles Project, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Wisconsin's Democratic Governor Tony Avers signed new legislative district maps into law yesterday. The governor proposed the maps and Republicans passed them to avoid having the liberal-controlled state Supreme Court draw the lines. Democrats hailed the signing as a major political victory in the swing state. The legislature has been firmly under Republican control for more than a decade. This despite Democrats winning 14 of the past 17 statewide elections. Democrats tried unsuccessfully for more than a decade to overturn the Republican-drawn maps, but it wasn't until the state Supreme Court flipped from conservative to liberal control last year that Democrats found a winning formula. Republicans said they had no better option. A top Republican official said Monday that Evers, quote, signed the most Republican-leaning maps out of all the Democrat gerrymandered maps being considered by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Coming up, Israel is making preparations for a ground invasion to Rafah. More on what it's planning for civilians and release of hostages. The Biden administration awards America's largest domestic semiconductor manufacturer $1.5 billion to expand domestic production. How the manufacturer plans to put funding to use. Looking for a home but don't like how high mortgage rates are? A real estate investor has some advice on an effective home search that can benefit you in the long run. Welcome back. According to Avi Malamed, a former Israeli intelligence official and senior official in Arab affairs, the IDF has likely finished their preparations for their ground offensive into Rafah. He says final orders to move in are in the hands of Israel's political establishment and will likely come following a civilian evacuation. He also says it's likely Israel will relocate civilians eastwards toward Israel's border when the time comes. I spoke with Milamed earlier to discuss his observations on the preparations, on the ground preparations. 
I think it should be understood in the world that Israel means business. Again, I have to re-emphasize, this is a situation where a sovereign state and a government of a sovereign state find itself in a situation where a brutal terror organization is kidnapping its civilians, and the government responsibility is to release those civilians. This is the government responsibility, whatever the means it takes. Now, it can be done very easily if tomorrow morning Hamas will say, okay, I'm releasing the civilians. This is what Israel has is mm -hmm. been saying all along the way. Release the hostages and there will be a ceasefire. And you were basically saying that um, on the Israeli end, though, the militarily and strategically, they're all prepared and they're just waiting to pull the trigger. Is that right? So you're saying they're ready to go into um, Rafah at any moment. So what are they, what do you think are they exactly waiting for to pull that trigger? One major thing, of course, is has to be in the context of making sure that civilians will be safe as much as possible in Rafah. So Israel has to do as a preliminary stage to make sure that the civilians in Rafah are going to be evacuated. Uh, because, again, this is one of the most complex, if not the most complex, war Israel has been fighting. This is massively urban area. Hamas is taking shelter in tunnels and bunkers beneath the ground within its own brothers and sisters. It's very complex, but it's very clear to anyone that Israel military operation must first and foremost uh, be such that will take into consideration the well-being of the civilians in Gaza Strip, as Israel has been doing to a large extent until now. All right. Thank you so much, Avi Malamed. I appreciate your time. Thank you. The United Nations Security Council is expected to vote on a Gaza ceasefire today. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. says the Biden administration will veto the resolution because it could interfere with efforts to secure a six-week pause hostage deal. The U.S. circulated a rival draft resolution supporting a temporary ceasefire yesterday. It calls for the release of all hostages and the lifting of all restrictions of humanitarian aid. The draft resolution states Israel's ground offensive in Rafah should not proceed under current circumstances and warns of serious implications for regional security and peace if more civilians are displaced. It included the risk for neighboring countries in reference to Egypt. The U.S. draft condemns any calls for resettlement or territorial change in Gaza that would violate international law. Arab nations hoping to shore up global support with their resolution despite rejection by the U.S. The vote is scheduled for 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The Chinese regime Coast Guards boarded a Taiwanese tourist boat near Taiwan yesterday. A Taiwanese minister says the incident triggered panic in Taiwan. Taiwan's Coast Guard says 11 crew members and 23 passengers were on board at the time and that six Chinese officers spent around a half hour checking the ship's route plan, certificate and crew licenses. The CCP on Sunday said its Coast Guard would patrol around the Taiwan-controlled island of Kinmen and set up law enforcement activity nearby. That's after two Chinese nationals died when their seaboat, speedboat capsized last week, trying to escape Taiwan's Coast Guard after venturing too close to Kinmen. Taiwan's defense minister says no military action will be taken and that the matter would be handled peacefully. He stated, not escalating tensions is our response. The Biden administration says it's providing $1.5 billion to the semiconductor company Global Foundries to expand production in New York and Vermont. 
The deal marks its third round of direct financial support for a microchip company under the Chips and Signs Act. That law allows the government to invest over $52 billion into U.S. chip manufacturing and advanced research and development. Global Foundries is constructing a new advanced microchip factory in Malta, New York. It's planning to boost production at its existing plant in Malta and will also use funding to update its plant in Burlington, Vermont. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says the chips are essential. She says they power military equipment, electric vehicles, smartphones and faster internet connections for Americans. On top of direct funding, the Biden administration says it'll also provide loans worth up to $1.6 billion. It says total public and private investment for the company's projects is expected to be over $12 billion. The projects aim to create 1,500 manufacturing jobs and 9,000 construction jobs over a 10-year span. $10 million is allocated towards training as terms of the deal. In other news, mortgage rates are surging right now, and that's reportedly causing some home hunters to hold off on buying. Should you buy now or wait for mortgage rates to fall? I asked this to Stephen Andrews, a real estate investor who's also the founder of Sorex Consulting. Here's what he told me. That's a great question. Um, when I look at buying a property, it's less about interest rates and it's more about how much you're actually buying for the property. And so over my 10 plus years in this business, I've never bought based on interest rates. For me, you never want to overpay for a property. So it's more about how much you're paying for the property and less about interest rates. So why not buy based on interest rates? Because you can always refinance your house. So if you overpay for a house, you can't necessarily get that money back. You might be upside down in your loan. Whereas if you focus on how much you're buying for the house, you're not going to be upside down, where if you do focus on the interest rates, then you could overpay for a property. And the way I look at it is focus on how much you're paying for the property and less about interest rates because you can always refinance it. That is a really interesting strategy and you don't want to miss out on your dream house. Now that may not coincide with the best rate environment there, but are there any advantages to waiting? Um, the only advantages that I see to waiting is if the price isn't right. If the price is right now, go ahead and buy now. You can always refinance. The way people are, are so affiliated on interest rates is that interest rates were so low several years ago, and those were historically low interest rates. Normally, interest rates are somewhere between 5 and 7% historically. And that's kind of where we're at right now. And so in, in interest rates are coming back down into that realm. And so I would say there's no advantages to wait because the interest rates are not going back down to those historical lows. Very interesting. And something to keep in mind here is the head of consumer lending at Access Bank. He says that inventory levels, they, had a, they were basically at about a third of what they were pre-pandemic when they hit their peak demand in 2021. They've increased a little bit since then at about a half of what they were in 2019. But how is that affecting people? What's available to them right now? Absolutely. There's not a ton out there. But there's also not a lot of people trying to buy right now because they're so affiliated on the interest rate. And so the way I look at it is if you were trying to buy a property now, you don't have a ton of competition. If you can get the loan, if you can afford the loan at a higher interest rate, you're going to get a better deal on that property because there's not a ton of competition right now.
That's interesting. And how do high rates affect the value of homes? So, the, you know, with, with high interest rates, it affects it because what it's going to do, um, it actually lowers the price of a home because the demand isn't there. The reason why prices went through the roof a couple years ago, one of the reasons why is because of interest rates. Interest rates were so low, so the demand was so high. And so, so it's very supply and demand. It, it, everybody was getting two and three offers above asking. And so that would drive the price up and people were overpaying for houses. So when interest rates are higher, you actually get a better value of your house because you have so much more bargaining power because houses aren't flying off the shelf like they were. Such valuable information you brought to the table. Stephen Andrews, real estate investor and founder of Sorex Consulting. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Switching gears here, want an up close and personal view of a total solar eclipse? A Delta Airlines flight this spring will provide you with that opportunity. This April 8th, Delta is offering a special flight from Austin, Texas to Detroit, Michigan. The flight will be specifically operated on an aircraft with extra large windows. The flight is timed for the best chance of safely viewing the solar eclipse at its peak, spending as much time as possible directly within the path of totality. The airline says it has five additional routes the same day that will also provide good chances to see the eclipse in the air. A European Space Agency satellite is expected to re-enter and mostly burn up in Earth's atmosphere tomorrow morning. The agency's Space Debris Office said that an international surveillance network are both monitoring and tracking the satellite. The satellite is predicted to re-enter at around 6 a.m. Eastern Time tomorrow, but there is a 15-hour window of uncertainty. The Space Agency will provide live updates on its website. The satellite is expected to break apart and most of the fragments should burn up in the atmosphere. The agency said some fragments could reach Earth's surface but won't contain harmful substances and will most likely fall into the ocean. And London Fashion Week concludes today but some special models are taken to the ramp. The group Loving Cats Worldwide held a cat extravaganza in the UK's capital over the weekend. Thousands of cat lovers gathered at Olympia, London to watch some of the most preened and pampered cats do the catwalk. The host of the event said their models were way cuter, but a little less cooperative than the models in London Fashion Week. Cats travaganzas have been held around the world from Tokyo, Japan to Bogota, Colombia. Look at those eyes. London's events played host to exotic breeds such as the hairless sphinx cat and the werewolf cat, a real treat for the diehard feline fan. Oh, the werewolf cat was news to me, but look at those chubby little twins right there being carried away. <laughs> yeah, I think after that I'm all kittied out. Oh yeah, really? Oh, I could never have enough. But yeah, that's a great idea. Back to the roots, right? To the catwalk. Anyway, uh, we have to wrap up our show right now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast, of course, at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.